one of the tremendous impacts of the Great Reformation was the elevation of the view of the church. The so-called church of the day in the 14th century had degenerated into basically an ecclesiastical hierarchy with corrupt leaders who had long, long since rejected the true biblical gospel, obviously known as the Roman Catholic Church. But largely due to the Great Reformation, the true church made up of regenerate individuals was once again elevated as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as a supernatural institution guaranteed by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be successful and to advance the kingdom of God. And one of the hallmarks of these protesting believers, Protestants, was that no one else was going to tell them how to do church. That wasn't going to happen. When the government of England attempted to mandate certain forms of worship in the church to take control of the church, several thousand Puritan pastors refused to have the government mandate anything concerning worship And those pastors were kicked out of their churches in what became known as the Great Ejection of 1662, which, by the way, started a revival of people who wanted to worship the way God would have them worship, not the way the government would have them worship. On Mother's Day of this year, I preached a message titled, The Christian's Mandate. And the point of that message from Romans 13 was that the Christian has an obligation from God to obey the reasonable and non-sinful laws of the government, that we don't jump to protest, we don't jump to push back immediately. We're not to be known for that. Today, after having preached on the Christian's mandate, I'd like to talk about the government's mandate. We know our responsibility. Does the government know theirs? Today, I'd like to talk to you about election 2020, the government's mandate from God. When the government shut down businesses and churches in early March because of coronavirus, we were told that potentially millions would die of this virus. And so to be good neighbors, we closed our doors. That was, that was the reason. But then the government continued exerting more and more control over the church to the point it became clear that the ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ was being gutted in most cases and flat out stopped in a few others. We were told to believe a presupposition that we were supposed to blindly accept, and that is that physical health eclipses everything, that the single most important thing on earth is staying alive. I wonder how the martyrs of old would have thought about that thinking. Never mind that because of the coronavirus shutdown, countless businesses have closed permanently, many other horrible effects on our society. According to a scholarly study, done by the Centers for Disease Control just a couple of months ago. In our nation, anxiety is up triple what is normal. Depression is up quadruple what is normal. Consideration of suicide is double what is normal. And 10%, one out of 10 of the citizens of the United States either increased or started substance abuse during this time. If ever the world needs a faithful church, it's right now. Of course, in the sovereignty of God, as far as the church of Jesus Christ is concerned, we've seen some really good things happen in this crisis this year. Coronavirus has kind of shut up the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel. I love the fact that Bethel Church shut down their healing ministry because of coronavirus. 
The bridges to the seeker-friendly churches in our nation are on fire because you can't entertain the lost through a 15-inch computer screen very well. It's turned many to Christ because they face their own mortality and they see people dying by the hundreds of thousands and saying, I, I don't know what to do with that, and they turn to Christ. It's caused the church of Jesus Christ to be cleansed of many unbelievers. I've talked to more pastors than I can keep track of now who have said, you know, there's certain families in our church that just drifted away. And I call them and say, hey, are you coming back to church? And they say, no, not really. Why? Because they were never saved. Technology has caused the word of God to go forth to places hitherto unreached. Our own little church here has been reaching people all over the world because of the live streams that we've done. And so we've seen in the sovereignty of God, good and wonderful things happen. But we've also seen negative impacts on the church of Jesus Christ as well. We have seen in the church of Jesus Christ a crisis in the source of authority. Now the Bible is being held up alongside Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, local, state, and national health officers that we compare what they say to what the Bible says. Since when do we have a different authority? We've also seen the crisis in the purpose of the church. Do you realize that the unbelievers of our society and our government have attempted to redefine the purpose of the church? That the purpose of the church is now to keep people alive and to keep them healthy. They've attempted to change the goal of the church, which is to gather and to make disciples, not so we can keep you alive so that something good happens to you when you do die. That's what we're to do. We've also seen the exposure of a lack of true belief in the sovereignty of God. That many who have said, I believe in the sovereignty of God, when it came down to actually applying it to their lives, recanted. As if somehow, Psalm 139, 16, that promises that God has already numbered your days before you were ever born, that might not actually be true. The day you are going to die has already been determined. All that's left is to find out how. That's it. The discipleship of our children was derailed. We're called to make disciples. There's no age bracket given. If you're five years old, then discipleship in the church stopped for you for over 10% of your life. That's like a 70-year-old not being discipled for seven years. And there's been an attempt to define the church as something that can happen remotely or online. Listen, Online church is technically an oxymoron because it means a separated gathering. That makes no sense. For me personally, I, I kind of thought all of my study of ecclesiology, I'd done the most of that for my life in, in two different seminary degrees. But I've never studied ecclesiology, the church of Jesus Christ, more in my life. I've never talked to more fellow pastors than I have in, in past months I've been immersed in this. We're seeing prominent pastors in California, such as Dr. John MacArthur, Dr. Jack Traber, calling for churches to open and for the people of God to gather, to be the ecclesia, to be the gathering as commanded in Scripture. 
I preached from 2 Chronicles 20, the declaration of King Jehoshaphat that the people of God will gather to worship even in the midst of a plague. I explained in our Romans 13 video we put out a time ago, the historic interpretation of that text overwhelmingly limits government at the point they try to control worship. And I explained in my message in 1 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, seven non-negotiable hallmarks of the church which are all based in the gathering, the assembly, the getting together physically of the people of God. And if you will indulge me this morning, I feel like I need to drive this point home one more time from a different angle. Particularly in light of our upcoming election, I am so thankful for all the songs that we sang about the coming kingdom, and that gives us great hope. But we still live here. We still have to deal with this. Don't be depressed because of whatever happens in the election. It makes no difference. The king is still coming. The true king is. You can look on with with curiosity. And gee, isn't that interesting that we now have even more wicked people in office than we had yesterday. Okay. But I preached this morning in the spirit of what Paul told Timothy concerning his study and preaching. 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul told Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And as I have studied and learned and grown, I'm compelled to share with you the result of my own study over these past months. Would you turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16? You have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 Chronicles. Historically speaking, our nation is closer to the trend of totalitarianism than ever before. Even just a a basic study of the characteristics of a totalitarian state would tell you that our nation is toying with it. We have a media that's completely one-sided. We have an increased state control of individuals. Wicked ideologies that all citizens are now expected to approve of. We have the repression of information concerning alternative viewpoints, sometimes called censorship. We have a movement toward one-party rule. We have the punishment of those who disagree with that particular party. We have the use of intimidation to force agreement. That's what we're headed towards. In case you're wondering where I got that list, those were the major core beliefs of Joseph Stalin, who would ultimately murder 20 million of his own Russian citizens to further his communist totalitarian agenda. But what's often neglected in the studies of totalitarianism is the variable of the total control of the church of Jesus Christ. Historically, this total control doesn't come instantly. It comes in degrees, like the proverbial dying frog in the boiling water. And if you don't recognize that the heat is going up a little bit, you will still be in the water when it's boiling. Now, in 1 Chronicles 16, we have a song of thanks by King David when the Ark of the Covenant had returned to Israel. I want to draw your attention just to one little section and really one verse as just a jumping off point this morning. Look with me at 1 Chronicles 16, verse 28. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 28, in the middle of this song of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And here's the point of today. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. I have one main point I hope to prove to you today, which will double, by the way, as a voting guide for Tuesday. For a government to restrict or limit the worship of God is putting God at cross purposes with himself. Let me repeat that. It's my only point today. For a government to restrict or limit the worship of God is putting God at cross purposes with himself. It would make it appear that God is contradicting himself, which of course he can never do, he can't do, he's immutable, he is unchangeable. And so to prove to this to you, I want to give you five biblical certainties. And we're going to take some time to nail these nails about an inch below the surface here. We're going to go deep. Five biblical certainties To prove that for a government to restrict or limit the worship of God is putting God at cross purposes with himself. We're going to build a case toward this point. Here's the first biblical certainty. I I tried to make these short, but we need truth, not brevity sometimes. The first biblical certainty, nations are required to acknowledge God and promote worship. Nations are required to acknowledge God and promote worship. Now, this may come as a surprise to you because our conception of the idea of separation of church and state tends to inform our thinking more than actually searching out what Scripture says about this. But all nations are required to acknowledge God, not any God, the true and living God of the Bible. This isn't for the purpose of forcing the worship of God, but rather it is to promote the worship of God by never preventing worship. By having a profound respect for, a profound deference for the worship of the God of the Bible. And as we'll see soon, even pointing toward God as a government. Now, I'm not speaking this morning of individual salvation of either the citizens of a nation or its kings and rulers. What we're speaking of this morning is God's design for a society that lives, generally speaking, in a fear of God as God being over all. This is what our key verse here says so clearly. 1 Chronicles 16, 31. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The whole idea of nations, by the way, is the will of God. It is the invention of God. Very clear from Scripture. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, Nations of the world are listed at least as geographic areas. You have the nation of Eden, the nation of Havilah, the nation of Cush, the nation of Assyria. Now, these are probably anachronistic names, meaning these are names that would be used later in most cases, but they're still distinct places that would become distinct nations. This is clearly God's design, and we go all the way to the end of our Bible, and we see this extending to the end of time, the world divided into nations in the eternal state on new earth with the capital of the world being New Jerusalem in the final nation of Israel. Now, we've shown from Scripture many, many times that in the future all nations will acknowledge God and promote the worship of God. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard that here. But, listen carefully. The nations acknowledging God is a future reality, but it's also a present requirement. 
And just because this generally isn't happening in the present, that doesn't negate the fact that God has required this of nations now. What will be the reason by which God judges the nations? Because they didn't obey him now. That's the reason. So how do we know that the nations of the earth are required to acknowledge God and promote the worship of God? I want to give you three reasons. The first one are three kind of topics here. The first one is Israel. The second one, I'll give you some general commands. And third, I want to give you some specific examples. First of all, I want to talk about Israel just for a moment. We talk about Israel a lot as God's chosen nation. Because if you got your Bible wet and wrung it out, it would bleed Israel everywhere. God's chosen nation is Israel. Always has been, always will be. We see these promises in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Israel existed in the Old Testament and will exist as a nation of saved people in the future to fulfill God's singular purpose for them. And that is, according to Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They point people to God. That's the purpose of Israel. To point all other nations to God. Psalm 67 speaks of the relationship of Israel to the rest of the nations. Psalm 67, 1 and 2, and we're not going to turn here. We're going to go to a lot of different scriptures, so you might just make some notes. May God be gracious to us, Israel, and bless us, Israel, and make his face to shine upon us, Israel. I'm adding the words Israel just so you know who the the plural pronoun us is speaking of. And what's the purpose? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Here's the purpose. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Listen, this isn't just a trite verse about spreading the gospel. God divides people into nations. And as a whole, the nations are called to know God and to know his ways. And so Israel tells us, that the nations of the earth are required to acknowledge God and promote the worship of God. Let me give you a second little topic here. Let me give you some of the general commands from Scripture concerning the nations. And this isn't nearly exhaustive at all. That they're required to acknowledge God and promote the worship of God. Psalm 67, verse 3, the very next verse. Let the peoples praise you, O God, and let all the peoples praise you. It's very important that that word peoples in Hebrew is plural. It's not just let everybody praise you. It's let the groups of people who are organized into nations praise you. Psalm 9, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. What does that mean? It means that the nations are to submit to God. How will he judge them? On the basis of their obedience, their obedience to his law. Isaiah 34, 1 and 2. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Why is God enraged? At the nations, there's only one possible reason when speaking of the grouping of humanity into nations. That as a nation, they have turned from governing according to God's will. That's the only reason. We're going to talk about that more shortly. What's God's requirement of the nations? Ezekiel 39, 7. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. That's God's requirement. Remember, just because that's a future reality which God will bring about, 
that doesn't negate the fact that that is God's present requirement now. And let me give you some specific examples of God requiring non-Jewish nations to acknowledge him and to promote worship. The book of Jonah chronicles God sending the prophet Jonah to the nation of Assyria, the capital city of Nineveh, keeping in mind that at this time in history, the 8th century B.C., the number one cause for alarm and the number one cause for harm in Israel was the empire of Assyria. And yet God sent a prophet to them. God sent Jonah to a Gentile nation. Jonah preached the message God gave him. Very simple sermon. In 40 days, you're dead. That was it. That was a simple sermon. And how did Nineveh respond? Jonah 3, 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. This is a sign of self-deprecation, of mourning your sin from the greatest of them to the least of them. And in fact, in the coming generations, Assyria would be used by God to punish Israel. Isaiah 10 makes this very clear that God would orchestrate this. And yet Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 12, decrees punishment for Assyria. Why? Because they refuse to acknowledge God as the true king of the earth. Verse 15 of Isaiah 10 says, This is God questioning Assyria. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify himself against the one who wields it? In other words, Assyria was a tool in the hand of God to discipline Israel. But Assyria said boastfully, verse 13 of that chapter, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. Similarly, God would use Babylon a century and a half later to discipline God's wayward people. Habakkuk chapter 1 says that the Chaldeans, a fierce warrior tribe who was in control of Babylon at this time, Habakkuk 1 verse 8 says they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And God tells Habakkuk that Babylon will invade Jerusalem. And in fact, Habakkuk is so afraid of this that the end of the book tells us that his knees tremble and his, his, his whole flesh becomes weak, his stomach hurts at the thought of what's going to happen. But then in Habakkuk chapter 2, God condemns Babylon because they've taken other nations by violence and the last condemnation of Babylon in Habakkuk 2 is that they are idol worshipers. They have done what? They've refused to acknowledge God and promote worship. And God rebukes them by telling them in verse 20 of Habakkuk 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, all the nations are obligated to worship God. All of them. Shortly after this prophecy, we see King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel chapter 4 records that the prophet Daniel was called by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret a dream that he had had. The interpretation was basically because King Nebuchadnezzar believed in his own greatness and that his dominion over the known world was his own doing and not because of God, that very shortly he would be made like one of the beasts of the field. He would be essentially made like an animal. But Daniel offers the king a chance. Daniel 4.27, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, he says, Repent and serve your people instead of your ego. One year later, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace and said to himself, 
Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Next words out of his mouth. Daniel 4.30, immediately he became like a wild animal eating grass for seven years. We're going to leave him there for a moment. He's got seven years, so we can come back in a bit. In the coming millennial reign of Christ on earth, the thousand-year period in which the King of Kings will physically rule on this world, Zechariah 14 gives the requirement for all nations. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16, everyone who survives of all the nations, speaking of the end of the Great Tribulation, those who survived, of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Listen very, very carefully. A completely secular government without fear of God was never God's plan. It never was. God himself instituted government in Genesis chapter 9 when he commanded that that humanity kill those who kill others, the death penalty. And just as he instituted the church, he instituted government, he instituted the church. A completely secular government of a nation would be like a church that's completely secular. That makes no sense. The idea of the separation of church and state is not to be taken as the state having no responsibilities before God. It's rather that the state is not to insert itself to control or impact negatively the worship of God, just as our First Amendment rightly guarantees. Now, you might say, and this is a common understanding in the church era, you might say, well, God just wants the individual people from every nation to worship him. And that's true. That is true. The privilege to worship God and to have individual eternal life is given by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of every individual who would believe on Christ to raise them from the dead someday. But if you think that God doesn't make demands of nations, then let me point out a second biblical certainty to you that for a government to restrict or limit the worship of God is putting God at cross purposes with himself. First certainty, nations are required to acknowledge God and promote worship. There's a second certainty. Kings and rulers represent the nation to God. Kings and rulers represent the nation to God. As far as God judges, the nation is made up of its rulers. The government is the nation as far as God is concerned. There's one very simple way to know that this is the case. And that is that all throughout Scripture, God holds kings and rulers responsible for the wickedness of their nations. He holds them responsible. Let me prove this to you. 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. They attempted to use it in the temple of their false god, Dagon. The Lord brought a plague on the Philistine people until they they cried out to their leaders, get this thing away from us. Get this Ark away. And so in 1 Samuel 6, the pagan priests instructed that the ark be sent back to Israel with five sets of guilt offerings. Why five? The text tells us one each for the five lords of the Philistines, the five kings whom God held responsible for the wickedness of all the people. Joshua chapter 10, Joshua, the leader of Israel, has led Israel as God's appointed instrument of justice against the wicked Amorites. And the five kings of the Amorites are captured. 
And to demonstrate God's judgment on the Amorites, Joshua himself kills them with the sword and hangs their bodies from a tree to demonstrate what God does to nations who have become too wicked to even exist anymore. Joshua chapter 12 gives a list of 31 kings conquered and presumably executed by the Israelites as God's appointed instrument of justice. God's judgment against these nations is expressed in the judgment of the kings, of the rulers. Why? Because they represent the nation to God. 1 Samuel 15, you're familiar with this. King Saul had been commanded by God to completely wipe out the Amalekites because they opposed Israel when Israel was coming up out of Egypt. Instead of completely destroying them as commanded, Saul kept the animals. He kept the treasures of the Amalekites. They killed all the people except one, King Agag of the Amalekites. King Agag was given a little time to cool his heels, and he was brought before Samuel. And 1 Samuel 15 records that he thought that the heat of the moment had passed, and he kind of had a smile on his face. I'm going to live through this thing. But this had displeased the Lord, and the prophet Samuel came 1 Samuel 15.33 says Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Why? Because kings and rulers represent the nation to God. These are all non-Jewish kings held responsible for the sin of their nation as representatives of the nation. Let me give you a third certainty. Now that we know that kings and rulers represent the nation, what are they supposed to do? Kings are to fear God and obey him. Kings are to fear God and obey Him. Now again, I'm not talking about individual salvation from sin, although that's certainly what we should hope for and pray for for all of our leaders. I'm talking about the category of person that the Bible calls God-fearers. In the book of Acts, we see that category of person called God-fearers. Paul addressed a crowd in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 16, and he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, Gentile God-fearers, unsaved people who acknowledged the true and living God but needed the gospel of Christ. Acts chapter 10 tells the story of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He was, according to verse 2, a devout man who feared God. He's a God-fearer. With all his household, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. But Cornelius did not know Christ and could not be said in any sense to be a Christian. He was a God-fearer, but not a Christian. The kings of the earth, whether saved or not individually, are commanded to be God-fearers. And we can prove this extensively and quite decisively from Scripture. First of all, the overriding principle for all people and certainly all rulers of the earth is that the earth has one ultimate king. We read this earlier, Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God is to be feared. He is to be acknowledged as the one true living God. But beyond this, we could identify some of God's requirements of the kings of the nations. I picked a few, just ten. What do these requirements do? They prove that they are God-fearers. Here are the ten requirements that I I chose. We could do many, many more. Here's the first requirement. They are to be righteous. They are to be righteous. Not in the sense of savingly, personally righteous. Not in the sense of the, the justified righteousness of Christ. But that their rule is to be characterized by doing what is right. Proverbs 16, 12 
says, It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. What does that mean that the throne is established by righteousness? That people want a king who does what is right to stay there. Here's the second requirement. They are to acknowledge that God placed them in power. They are to acknowledge that God placed them in power. Psalm 76 verse 12 says that it is God, quote, who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. In other words, all rulers have to remember that their power is given by God. Remember what Jesus told Pilate? He said, you would have no power unless it was given to you. There's a third requirement. They are to give thanks to God for his word. They are to give thanks to God for his word. Psalm 138.4 tells us that this will in fact be the case in the future kingdom of Christ on earth. But remember, that doesn't negate that responsibility now. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. Can you imagine an interview with a president or a governor or a senator or a congressman where they said, you know, I really didn't know what to do in this situation, but after reading the book of Proverbs, it became very clear to me. Here's a fourth requirement. They are to destroy the wicked of society. They are to destroy the wicked of society. Proverbs 20, verse 26, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. This is the idea of separating them out and then running over them. They are to winnow, to separate out the wicked from the rest of society. Here's a fifth requirement. They are to rule for the people's sake. They're to rule for the people's sake. What is that? That's the absence of corruption. They're the rule for the people's sake. Proverbs 20, verse 28. By the way, the book of Proverbs was written to a future king. That's what it's for. Proverbs 20, 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. This is the idea of covenant loyalty to his people. That he is a servant to the people to care for them, not to brutalize them, not to harm them, not to set a terrible example for them, not to take privileges that his own people can't have. How about this one? This is not a statement on any political party. This is just what the Bible says, a sixth requirement. They are to limit taxation. They're to limit taxation. Proverbs 29 verse 4. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. In other words, higher taxes destroys your nation. The Hebrew poetic, I'm just saying what the Bible says. The Hebrew parallelism here is very clear. It's what's called contrasting parallelism. parallelism. Justice is the opposite of high taxes. That's what the Bible says. Taxes that are burdensome, now, obviously, you have to have some taxes. You have to run the government. I'm glad that our taxes go toward having the greatest military on earth. That's the job of the government, is to protect its people. Romans 13 commands us to pay those taxes, but overly burdensome taxes are unjust. They're unjust. Here's a seventh requirement. They are to protect the truly helpless. They are to protect the truly helpless. Psalm 29, 14 says, If a king faithfully judges the poor. Now, let me give you the biblical context of the poor. The poor are not made up of those who decided not to get a job. The poor are not made up of those who are lazy. The poor are not made up of those who won't do for themselves. 
The poor are the truly helpless of society, those utterly incapable of defending or helping themselves, like the mentally incapable, the physically disabled. How about human beings so tiny that they can't defend themselves like unborn children? Those are the poor. And so that proverb says, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. I want to give you three more requirements of kings, and I save these to last because they're going to be shocking to you. They're going to be shocking because it's not how you're used to thinking about government. I promise you. Listen carefully. The eighth requirement of kings, they are to praise the name of the Lord. So much for separation of church and state. Psalm 148, 11. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. It is the job of our government to praise God. Here's a ninth requirement. We're not used to this. They are to fear the glory of God. They are to fear the glory of God. In the future, Psalm 102:15 says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. What does that mean? It means every ruler asking, will this decision bring glory to God or detract from his glory? And I'm scared to death to make the wrong one. And one more requirement. This will blow your socks off. Our governor, our president, our senators, our congressmen are to fear the Son of God. They are to fear the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Can I say this? You would be perfectly within your rights to tell any governing official, don't make Jesus mad. That's what Psalm 2 says. Don't make Jesus mad. They are to praise the name of the Lord. They are to fear the glory of God. They are to fear the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Listen, the idea of a completely secularized government is never the biblical standard. It never is. The separation of church and state is meant to keep the government from interfering with the priority of worship, not to keep true worshipers from influencing the government. I can prove that very easily with one logical idea. How different do you think our state would be? How different do you think our nation would be if every single governing official acted in righteousness, acknowledged that God placed them in power, gave thanks to the Lord for his word, destroyed the wicked of society, ruled for the people's sake, limited taxation, protected the truly helpless, praised the name of the Lord, feared the glory of God, and feared the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Do you think our society would be a little different? Now, we left poor King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon eating grass because he'd exalted himself. After seven years, his reason returned to him. And Daniel chapter 4 is his own account of this incident. By the way, the only known inspired letter from a pagan that we take as the word of God today. And he gives his own response and he writes this letter to all of his people. Now, in typical pagan empire, emperor fashion, he sees himself as ruling the entire world, so that's how his letter uh, starts. But here's the beginning of his letter. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is a pagan polytheist saying that Yahweh is the Most High God. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You know what that sounds like, by the way? Sometime in your own time, compare that to the first three verses of 1 Peter. It's almost identical. Then he closes this letter at the end of Daniel 4, and he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's what a king is supposed to do. When Solomon was preparing to build the temple of God in Jerusalem, he dealt with a foreign king, King Hiram of Tyre. He dealt with him for building materials. Second Chronicles 2, beginning in verse 11, tells us Hiram's attitude toward God. And it's in a letter to Solomon. He says, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and the royal palace for himself. That's what a king is supposed to do. What's he doing? He's fearing God and obeying him by doing what? Acknowledging God and promoting the worship of God. This is a pagan king helping build the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1 records the emperor of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great, making a decree concerning the Jewish exiles. He had inherited them from the former kingdom of Babylon, which he conquered. Ezra 1 verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He acknowledges that God gave him power. And he has charged me to do what? To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What's he doing? He's fearing God and obeying him by doing what? Acknowledging God and promoting the worship of God. Why? By helping, how? By helping rebuild the temple. These are biblical certainties. These are, these are undeniable. Nations are required to acknowledge God and promote worship. Kings and rulers represent the nation. Kings are to fear God and obey Him. But how are the kings to fear God and obey Him? How do they live out those ten requirements that I listed for you? The fourth certainty is that kings and the government are to be guided by the law of God. Kings and the government are to be guided by the law of God. Turn with me over to the New Testament to Romans 13. We've been there numbers of times, familiar to you, I'm sure. I want to set the historical context of Romans 13. I haven't had a chance to do this recently. This is our clearest passage on obedience to the government. The Church of Jesus Christ, when Romans 13 was written, had barely been established about 25 years. Very, very young. And the message of the gospel of salvation from sin by faith alone and Christ alone included and does include today still the message that the Christian, listen carefully, is not of this world and that the true king, Jesus Christ, has yet to come. And so there would be a natural inclination to do what? To simply reject every societal institution. Remember that in the apostles' day, 
This is very important to grasp. In the apostles' day, there was generally speaking an anticipation that Christ could return at any moment. Even in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul teaches about the coming rapture of the church and he speaks as if he's going to be there. And so the, the church and the Christians of Rome in particular, living under the rule of the Roman Empire, they're reminded in Romans 13 that the natural world in which we live has not been entirely abandoned by God. Certain institutions such as marriage and the government continue on in their limited purposes. The church believed itself, and rightly so, to be a completely distinctive community, separate from the world, and that Christ was the rightful ruler of the world. So here's the logic. It'd be very natural for the church to regard itself as above any obedience to mere human authorities. Let me put it this way. They already worshipped God to whom Caesar would bow. Why would they bow to Caesar? Romans 13 gives the answer. That the government fulfills a God-given and limited purpose. Here it is, Romans 13.1. Very easy to understand. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's clear enough. Now, what's the government's role? Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What's the job of the government? It is to punish the wicked lawless. And that is the reward to the innocent, to have a society devoid of the wicked. That's our reward. But, as the eminent Dr. Paul Feinberg points out, Romans 13 has been wrongly used to support obedience to the government at all costs. German Christians used Romans 13 to support obedience to Adolf Hitler. In July of 1933, during Hitler's first summer in power, a German pastor named Hassenfelder preached a sermon at at the massive Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. And he preached from Romans 13 to remind the worshipers to obey Adolf Hitler. The church was decorated with Nazi banners, stormtrooper flags, and packed with faithful members of the Nazi party. In South Africa, the National Party gained power in 1948. And this party enforced apartheid, which means apartness. It's a system of laws which radically separated the white and the black citizens of South Africa, even to the point of enforcing separate living areas and public facilities. If you were a black family living in a primarily white neighborhood, you were out of luck and you had to move. You were forced by the government to do this. And sadly, one of the great reasons that apartheid was successful for almost 50 years because the pastors in the Dutch Reformed churches in South Africa were preaching Romans 13 that you should obey this nonsense. They preached that Romans 13 was unlimited in scope. Romans 13 is not a call to blind obedience to everything. It is simply a call to live peaceably in this world as Christians. So how is the government called to rightly carry out Romans 13? Very simply, the government is to be guided by the law of God. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, you understand 
that the Ten Commandments is found in Deuteronomy 5 and first in Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments are really the constitution of the nation of Israel. The covenant of God with his chosen nation. And so the Ten Commandments as part of the law of Moses, the law for that covenant, those are no longer in effect as a covenant. They're replaced by the new covenant in Christ and we have the law of Christ as revealed in the New Testament. But you also remember that nine of the Ten Commandments are given once again. They're reiterated in the law of Christ in the New Covenant. And by the way, Ezekiel 44, 45, and 46 all predict that in the coming reign of Christ, that, tenth, that last commandment that's been left out of the New Covenant, the Sabbath is coming back. But you also know, and we've said this before going through the Pentateuch, that the Ten Commandments reflect the heart of God for an obedient humanity. The heart of God never changes. And so that reflection is always the same. And in fact, the Ten Commandments are to be the basis for human government. I won't ask you to take my word for it. How about we take the word of the prophet Micah? Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come. Now listen carefully. The nation shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Here it is. For out of Zion, that is Jerusalem, shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In other words, this is a picture of kings from other nations coming, receiving the law of God and taking it back with them to govern according to them. We've already said that Proverbs 16, 12 points out that the throne of a king is established by righteousness. There's only one source of righteous behavior and rule, and that is the law of God. There's no other source. What other source could you think of? There isn't one. And so what is the government supposed to do? They're supposed to protect the innocent from the wicked and they're to do this by looking to the law of God, to the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's most heinously broken by presenting government as the answer to all your problems. That's idolatry of the state. God alone is to be worshipped, not the state, not any other ideology. No images are to be set up to worship. That's the second commandment. Anytime the government insists on obedience to an ungodly law, they have set up an image to worship. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. What does it mean to take the Lord's name? It means to identify with him like a woman takes her husband's name. We can't say that we're one nation under God taking the Lord's name as it were and yet be ruled by those who ignore the law of God. You can't have it both ways. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath. We don't need a civil Sabbath law, but you remember what the Sabbath law is based in? It's based in creation. That for six days God created, and the seventh day he rested. God is to be exalted as the creator, acknowledged as our maker. Is that happening in our culture? No. Evolution is taught so much as fact that now it's just believed blindly. Remembering God as creator, that alone would turn our society on its ear in a positive sense. How about honoring your father and mother? The government is to protect and honor the God-given family structure. It is a marriage between a man and a woman who are commanded by God to have children to populate the earth. 
How about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. The government is to protect the innocent and punish the murderers. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. They are to protect and honor the marriage bed. Hebrews 13, all forms, all sources of sexual immorality should be, made out, should be outlawed, should be made illegal. No more strip clubs, no more pornography. You want to do that? Go to prison. How about the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. That protects property ownership, which is the opposite of socialism, which goes toward Marxism, by the way. How about the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We have a legal system that protects the innocent. And how about the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This again has implications for property ownership. The St. Louis couple recently they had to defend their own home from hundreds of rioters who were yelling at them that that's my bedroom, that's my bathroom, I'm going to come live in your house. Who was right and who was wrong? The rioters were. They were violating the 10th commandment, violating the 8th commandment. The kings and rulers and governors are called to protect the innocent from the wicked, being guided by the law of God, acknowledging God as our creator, protecting the innocent against those who destroy marriages, those who murder, those who steal, those who violate property rights, and those who wrongly accuse. But what happens to the rulers who won't do that, which is most of them? What happens to the kings who disregard the law of God and their rule? I'm not talking about their individual salvation. They'll be judged in that regard as well. What happens to them? One more certainty. The fifth certainty, biblical certainty, is that kings and rulers will be brought to judgment for their failures. Kings and rulers will be brought to judgment for their failures. What failures? The failure to acknowledge God, to promote worship, to fear and obey God, to be guided by the law of God. Isaiah 14, the kings of the earth are brought down to the grave, brought down to nothing, brought down to Sheol, to be forever shamed. In Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth will attempt to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In verse 9 of that same psalm, God declares, You, the Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is a picture of Christ crushing nations with his own power. Here's the whole point. If the king's duty, the government's duty, is to acknowledge and promote the worship of God, to fear God and obey him, to be guided by the law of God, then to restrict or limit the worship of God is putting God at cross purposes with himself. God has commanded governments to acknowledge him, promote worship, fear God and obey him, be guided by the law of God. Therefore, the government is outside of its rights and outside of the will of God to place limits and regulations on the form and the function of our worship together. That is not their place. That is not their right. They may ask nicely for our help, but they may not demand it. Imagine this. Imagine a governor, for example, in a theoretical state that has a terrible disease, a theoretical state with wildfires raging out of control, 
a theoretical state with crime rising faster than ever, with riots in the streets by lawless people. And imagine a governor who feared God, at least in the general sense, admitting publicly in a press conference. Our state allows for the murder of hundreds of babies every day, those precious ones created by God the Creator. We repent. We are punishing good citizens and releasing violent criminals into society. We repent. Our state is hypocritically supporting law-breaking rioters and punishing law-abiding worshipers. We repent. Our state is burdening citizens with high taxes. We repent. And we have abused our power by restricting and limiting the worship of God when we have no right to do so for any reason. We repent. We have defined some aspects of the worship of God as illegal. We repent. And imagine in this theoretical state if we had a governor like the king of Nineveh who said in Jonah 3, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. Imagine that. Might I add this? I love the United States of America. I love our country. I know you do too. It's God's will to love your country. We're called to be national But God made an everlasting covenant with Israel that Israel will continue on into eternity. And even with that nation, with one with whom he has an everlasting covenant, God dismantled her. And Israel as a nation ceased to exist first for 70 years. That didn't do the trick. Then for 1,900 years. And that's with a nation with whom he's made an everlasting covenant. God has made no such covenant with the United States or with any other nation. And the fact that God has not wiped the U.S. off the map is only by his long-suffering mercy. So how do you vote on Tuesday? It's very simple. Vote for those most likely to acknowledge and promote the worship of God, to fear God and obey him, and be guided by the law of God. And we as the church, we have one job. Our job doesn't change Wednesday morning. We have one job. It's always been the same. Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is our job, always will be until Christ returns. We are the ecclesia. We are the gathering. We are the assembly of Christ. And as long as God allows me to occupy this pulpit, that is exactly what we will be. The church that does not gather is not the church and we will not stop. And we will worship in the way Scripture mandates in the way we see fit because we must obey God rather than man. We must. And if you don't believe God will bless that, I I don't know what else to tell you because the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God blessing those who will trust them when they can't see what's before them. In fact, 
the church gathering to worship is the only hope for our state and for our nation. That's the only hope. Just as God said that he would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if there were but 10 worshipers, so we might ask God to look upon the gathered church, the ecclesia, the assembled church of Jesus Christ, and therefore have mercy. May God be merciful and kind to our nation because his people gather. Because they gather to bless his name. So how do you vote on Tuesday if you haven't already? You vote for those who will follow the law of God and you have a general curiosity and when things don't go the way we hope they do, you go, okay, the king is coming. The king is coming. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, while we are talking today about bigger picture things, how the government is to function and and to instruct the government from Scripture on what the government's mandate is, we, of course, are here first and foremost to proclaim Christ and to recall that there may be those among us or those listening online even who do not know Jesus Christ. And while they may even agree to a certain extent that our government or or people in general should be God-fearers, they may be still in that category of not having bent the knee individually to Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, for them. We pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here even in our midst who has not knelt before Christ the King and asked him humbly to become king, not of the earth he already is, but king of their hearts, to forgive them of their sins and to change them from a child of the devil into a child of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. We do ask you to be merciful to our nation. We ask you to be merciful to our state in all the ways that you would see fit. We ask you, Lord, to put more godly people in power this coming week than have been there previously. We ask you to turn the tide, not because we would bring in the kingdom, not because this world is going to get better and better, but simply because you've told us to pray in First Timothy 2 for those in authority. And we do still have to live here until you come. And so we ask you to be merciful and to be kind. But we acknowledge that there is a day that we will look to the sky and we will see the coming of the true king. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, would you be merciful and gracious to us on this earth? We pray in Christ's name, amen.